0: and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the peace talks underway in Saudi Arabia, at which 40 nations have sent senior officials to discuss Ukraine's 10-point peace plan. With Russia not invited, it is clear there is an attempt underway to appeal to the BRICS nations, Brazil, China, India and South Africa, to stop supporting Russia or to get off the fence in finding a way to end the war. Joining us is someone who has met with Russia's Foreign Minister Lavrov back in April in an effort to find a peaceful solution to the war in Ukraine, Charles Kupchin, who was Director of European Affairs on the National Security Council during the Clinton administration. He's now a Professor of International Affairs at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service and spent the last three years of the Obama administration as Special Assistant to President Obama for National Security He's the author of How Enemies Become Friends, The Sources of Stable Peace, and his latest book is Isolationism, A History of America's Efforts to Shield Itself from the World. Then we'll speak with George Beebe, who feels that Saudi Arabia is making a significant mistake by not inviting the Russians to participate in the Jeddah Peace Summit, because there can be no meaningful progress towards a peace deal that doesn't include both parties to the conflict the Director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He served in government for nearly 25 years, including as Director of Russia Analysis at the CIA and as a White House Advisor on Russia Matters for Vice President Dick Cheney. His latest book is The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe. Then finally, after the magistrate judge who arraigned Trump on Wednesday reminded him, quote, that it is a crime to try to influence a juror or threaten to attempt to bribe a witness or any other person who may have information about your case, or to retaliate against anyone for providing information about your case to the prosecution. But then Trump posted a threat, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. We'll discuss how, in spite of Trump's claims of victimhood, the real victims of Trump's attempt to steal the 2020 election are the over 90 million Americans whose vote Trump tried to steal. Joining us is Amanda Marcotte, a feminist author, blogger, and politics writer for Salon. She's the author of Troll Nation, How the Right Became Trump-Worshipping Monsters, Set on Rat-Fing, Liberals, America, and Truth Itself. And we will discuss her latest article at Salon, Why Trump's January the 6th indictment Feels So Different, This Time There Are Victims. And joining us now is Charles Kupchin, who is the Director for European Affairs on the National Security Council during the Clinton administration. He's now a Professor of International Affairs at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service, and he spent the last three years of the Obama administration as special assistant to President Obama for national security, and is the author of How Enemies Become Friends, The Sources of Stable Peace, and his latest book is Isolationism, A History of America's Efforts to Shield Itself from the World. Welcome to Background Briefing. Charles Kupchin.
1: Good to join you again, Ian.
0: Well thanks for joining us, Charles, and they've been meeting in Saudi Arabia at Jeddah, 40 government representatives, pretty high level representatives, uh, Jake Sullivan from the Security Council Director representing the United States, Irmak uh, representing Ukraine, presenting their 10-point peace plan. I think largely to the BRICS nations, China, India, Brazil, and South Africa who have sent delegations. So that seems to be the strategy here. What, what do you, th- you think the chances are that, and the Ukrainians admitting ad, have admitted that it's a, going to be a heavy lift, what are the chances are of persuading China, India, Brazil and South Africa to start supporting Ukraine or at least support a peace plan based upon what Ukraine is asking for?
1: I mean, I think the meeting is a win for Ukraine in as much as, as you rightly noted, most of the folks around the table represent the global south. And many of those countries, including India, Brazil, South Africa, the Saudis themselves have been sitting on the fence. They have not sided clearly with the West. They haven't sided with Russia and China. And the fact that you have this meeting taking place with the Chinese, but not the Russians, I think is a sign that Ukraine is on a charm offensive with these countries that have yet to get firmly behind Ukraine and condemn Russia. Are they going to come out of this meeting with a new position? No. Is this an effort for Ukraine to try to get more traction and more support? in the global south, yes. I do think it also speaks volumes that the Chinese are there even though the Russians are not. And that that really is, I think, a win for Ukraine, not because I expect Beijing to back off its support from Moscow, but because it does suggest that China may not be 100% comfortable with this war and is willing to show up at a meeting without Russian representation.
0: So the fact that the Global South have largely supported Russia and not Ukraine, or at least have been on the fence, is that a failure of U.S. diplomacy in not, not being able to win these countries over? And and are they opposed to the United States and NATO based upon, for example, the Iraq War and Afghanistan? I mean, that's the impression you get, certainly from Lula in um, Brazil and and from AMLO next door in Mexico that they see this as, as a, a kind of Western colonial war and somehow it escapes their attention that Russia, that the Soviet Union was a colonial power and uh, the Soviet Union itself was a colonial project along with, of course, their the colonies in Eastern Europe, the Warsaw Pact.
1: Uh, you know, I wouldn't call it a, a, a failure, for the United States as much as a, a learning moment for the United States, because the fact that you have had this bald act of aggression, a land grab by Russia, with many countries not willing to come out and firmly oppose this war, suggests that we really are heading into a moment in international history in which alignments are going to be much more fluid than they used to be in which the world won't be divided up into two blocks with democracies on one side and non-democracies on the other. So I I think what we're seeing is a glimpse of the future in which many countries, including large, powerful countries, and India will soon be uh, a top-ranked player, Indonesia will likely have a top five economy within a few decades. Uh, Turkey, Brazil, right? These are, these are are countries that are climbing the international ranks. They are not going to clearly side with either East or West. And I think the takeaway for the United States is we've got to do a better job of winning over hearts and minds in the global South. And I also do think you're right, Ian, that part of what's, what's at play here is historical baggage. Uh, and it comes in, in a couple of different flavors. One is that, you know, the United States has exercised a heavy hand in places like Latin America. And when Putin goes out there and says, you know, this is a, um, an anti-colonial war, that view, even though actually it's a, it is an imperialistic war, that, that view gets traction. And I do think also the United States is paying a price for the last couple of decades in which it launched wars in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Syria, in Libya, none of which went particularly well. And so I I think sort of the, the global south is watching this and saying, how different is what Russia is doing in Ukraine from what the United States did in Iraq, I, I actually think it's quite different, but I think in the in many uh, many countries there is a, a a moral equivalence of sorts.
0: So, Charles, Captain, when you met with Russia's Foreign Minister Lavrov back in April, I won't ask you what you discussed. Obviously, but did you get the impression at all that that the Russian leadership recognized that this war has not gone well for them and? And if they, if they were concerned about NATO expansion eastward, then now they've got NATO in um, Finland and Sweden. I mean, I could list all of the, the, the ways it's gone badly for them, and I'm sure you're familiar with them. So did you get that impression at all? Or is it just, you know, they're going to soldier on, as Putin keeps saying?
1: You know, I, I think that the Russians have no choice but to understand that this war has been a disaster uh, in part because they have lost Ukraine and it's been of their own doing, but they have completely alienated a country that, yes, does have a long history of religious, cultural, linguistic ties to Russia. But you've now got, you know, 44 million seething Ukrainians, Right, whose families have been, uh, in many cases, lost loved ones, houses bombed, farms mined. And so they, they, they've lost Ukraine for good, thanks to Vladimir Putin. And, and they have to get that. Uh, do Russians, when you speak to them today, especially those who are in positions of, of authority, will they admit that? No, they won't. But you, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand that this has this war has has backfired. And as you mentioned, this was in part about rolling back NATO enlargement, undoing the post-Cold War settlement in Europe. They've got the opposite. They now have Sweden and Finland joining NATO. They've got more U.S. troops in Poland, more West European troops in the Baltics. So this really has been a, a real failure for Putin. Are they prepared to try to get out of this box? No. I think unfortunately right now, both Ukraine and Russia are determined to slug it out on the battlefield. And that's why this meeting that we're we're discussing in Jeddah this weekend isn't really going to make a difference. And that we're not yet at a point in which either side is ready to move from the battlefield To the negotiating table. I do think that we're going to get there sooner rather than later. As far as I can tell, Ukraine's offensive is not going particularly well. They don't have a lot more combat power to bring to the field. Might they break through Russian defenses? Yes. Is it clear that they're going to make it to the the 91 borders and restore territorial integrity? I think it's it's very unlikely that that will be the outcome. And that means either a frozen conflict or, eventually, an effort to negotiate a ceasefire and then a permanent territorial settlement.
0: But it's a pretty heavy lift for the Ukrainians to break through these Russian defenses and the Russians have had months to prepare them if they don't have any air cover. and the the Russian Air Force is intact. The Army and the, and the Black Sea Fleet have taken a lot of hits, but the uh, Air Force is unscathed, and I don't see how you could have a major breakthrough with ta- columns of tanks that are vulnerable to Russian uh, fighter bombers and uh, attack helicopters. Uh,
1: that, would, that assessment would be consistent with my own. You know, the offensive has been running now for multiple weeks. My understanding is that in one section, Ukraine has been able to puncture the first line of Russian defenses. But there are three, at least three lines of defense, minefields, trenches, tank traps, concrete fortifications, more trenches. Uh, You're right to say that the Russians have had multiple months to put in very, very formidable defenses. And we know from history that a force that's on the offense needs considerable superiority to break through forces that are hiding behind and dug into defensive positions. Uh, So right now, uh, I'm not terribly optimistic that this is an offensive that is going to succeed in getting the bulk of Ukraine's territory back into Ukrainian hands. That then confronts the Ukrainian government with a rather difficult choice later this year, which is, do you just keep at this? More of same for several years, hoping that the US and its NATO allies keep sending more artillery, more tanks, more armor, more drones, Or do you begin to say, you know what, we've got 87, 88, 89% of our territory, maybe we're better off rebuilding what we have than fighting for the remaining 13% and suffering the death and destruction that would come with that. I have no idea what the Ukrainian government will decide. I do think Biden is serious when he says, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. So we'll simply have to wait and see where Zelensky and his colleagues take the country uh, as if, if, as you and I have been discussing, this offensive does not succeed in gaining anything close to full territorial sovereignty.
0: But you were saying earlier, Charles, that the Ukrainian people are really... Uh, you know, riled up for the want of a better description about what Russia's done to them. Everybody's suffered casualties in their family and they've seen their homes and cities destroyed and their farms mined, etc. They're putting pressure on Zelensky, right? They want to
1: win. They want to get rid of the Russians. So that puts him in a difficult position, doesn't it? He's in a very difficult political position. I mean, if you look at Ukrainian public opinion polls, very, very strong support for winning and that means the full expulsion of russian troops and the reintegration of the crimean peninsula and all of of donbass but when you get to the point where the war seems to be bogging down when it looks like neither side is going to make a lot more progress on the battlefield that historically is when you see both sides begin to stare reality in the face and say, you know what, maybe we're better off trying to get a ceasefire and resolving remaining issues at the negotiating table. And my best guess is that if Ukraine is to get back all of its territory, restore its borders to where they were in 1991, when the Soviet Union started to fall apart, my best guess is that's more likely to happen at the negotiating table than it is on the battlefield and very likely will have to await Vladimir Putin's demise. Uh, And so whether the Ukrainians arrive at that conclusion, I have no idea. Uh, But I do think that we are toward the end of this year getting to a moment of reckoning when some some tough decisions have to be made. And I'm guessing Putin is prepared to simply wait things out, in part because he's watching the electoral clock here in the United States, probably guessing that if Trump is the next president, he'll end up with a better deal in Ukraine than he would if uh, Biden gets a second term. So we're just going to have to wait and see how this plays out.
0: So just in the last minute then, in your meeting back in April with uh, Russia's Foreign Minister Lavrov, without getting into details, but can you just give us a sense of whether you think that at the end of the day they want to make a deal? Uh, because as you just pointed out, I, I agree with you. I think Putin is hoping that Trump will be reelected and he's probably you know using active measures to help him get reelected. So what's your final impression there, whether or not they, they want to make a deal?
1: I, I think we, we just don't know what Putin's preferences, red lines, minimum acceptable outcome are. I think Putin went into this war fully convinced that he could pull Ukraine back into the Russian fold, that he could topple the government in Kyiv install a puppet and effectively reintegrate the country into Russia's sphere of influence. Now that he has alienated every single Ukrainian, except perhaps a few that have have moved into into Russia, uh, one would think that he would have to uh, arrive at a conclusion that he's not going to reintegrate the country. Does he then decide that he's going to look for a consolation prize? and try to keep hold of those territories still under Russian control, maybe. Uh, But at this point, I think it's very difficult to to know what the Russians consider to be an acceptable outcome. You know, at some point, one would think that um, uh, reality would stare them in the face and they they would realize that this war has been a an utter strategic failure. Uh, But that's not likely uh, to be to be Putin's conclusion. And that's why I'm guessing that uh, a stable peace and the potential restoration restoration of Ukrainian sovereignty is probably going to have to wait until Russia has a new president and, and hopefully a president that that has a very different view about how to conduct Russian foreign policy.
0: Well, Charles Kapchin, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
1: It's been my pleasure again.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Charles Kupchin, who was director for European affairs on the National Security Council during the Clinton administration. He's now a professor of international affairs at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. And he spent the last three years of the Obama administration as special assistant to President Obama for national security. And he's the author of How Enemies Become Friends, The Sources of Stable Peace. And his latest book is Isolationism, A History of America's Efforts to Shield Itself from the World. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into whether or not Saudi Arabia is making a significant mistake by not inviting the Russians to participate in the Jeddah Peace Summit because there can be no meaningful progress towards a peace deal that doesn't include both parties to the conflict.
2: Imagine me and you, I do, I think about you day and night.
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is George Beebe, who's the Director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He served in government for nearly 25 years, including as Director of Russia Analysis at the CIA and as a White House Advisor on Russia matters for Vice President Dick Cheney. His latest book is The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe. Welcome to Background Briefing, George Beebe. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, George. And the talks in uh, Jeddah, Saudi Arabia are underway. This is uh, that 40 nations uh, have sent top uh, officials to discuss Ukraine's 10-point peace plan. But most notable are the fact that the BRICS nations, with the exception of Russia, that's China India, Brazil and South Africa are in attendance. And in terms of your book, The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into nuclear Catastrophe, our shadow war is essentially what the representative from Brazil, Celso Amorim, said in his video presentation at these talks in Jeddah. Quote, this is not only a conflict between Russia and Ukraine, President Lula da Silva's representative said in a speech delivered uh, virtually. This is also a chapter in a long-standing rivalry between Russia and the West. So that seems to be the prevailing opinion of what's happening in this war in the global South. Would you agree?
3: Yeah, I think that's right. I think there are two dimensions to this war. One, obviously, is between Russia and Ukraine. That's a bilateral war, and it has to do in part with territory, in part with how ethnic Russians and Russian speakers are treated inside Ukraine. But there is a wider strategic dimension to this, and it has to do with Russia's role in Europe, uh, whether Europe is going to be NATO-centric or whether we can find some sort of security architecture in which Russia feels it can play a, a part. And that is a big part of uh, why this war uh, happened in the first place. So if we're going to find a way out of this, we're not only going to have to address the, uh, the bilateral Russia-Ukraine issues, but we're also going to have to address that bigger strategic question of uh, Russia's place in Europe.
0: So do you think the Ukrainians then can convince the representatives from China, India, and Brazil, and South Africa of the former, which is that they were attacked by Russia and their country is being systematically destroyed by Russia?
3: Well, I think that's not a, a difficult case for them to make. Obviously, they have been invaded by Russia. Obviously, Russia is wreaking great destruction on Ukraine. And I think there's a great deal of sympathy for Ukraine in the so-called Global South, including among the, uh, the BRICS countries. Uh, China it has real concerns about issues of sovereignty and territorial integrity. They worry about their own territorial integrity and sovereignty. Uh, and I think they're quite sympathetic to Ukraine's plight in all of this. But at the same time, I think these states also recognize that there is a broader dimension to this war, too. Uh, And so uh, when they attempt to press for peace, um, they think that part of this is Russia having to moderate its ambitions regarding territory in Ukraine, but they also think the United States is going to have to sit down at the table and negotiate over that broader European security architecture.
0: So Given that this is a Ukrainian initiative, obviously with a lot of help from Saudi Arabia, what is your feelings then about U.S. diplomacy or the lack thereof? Is there some kind of reckoning going on in Washington as to why it is that the global south does not support the U.S. position or the NATO position, particularly the U.S. position?
3: Well, I think Washington is wrestling with how to bring this war to a successful conclusion. And there aren't easy answers to that. Um, In appealing to the global South and trying to appeal to the global South, the United States is emphasizing those uh, principles of territorial integrity and sovereignty. Those are things that much of the world can get behind. But that by itself is not proven enough to really bring the global south over to the U.S. and Ukrainian position on this. Their views are much more ambivalent. And uh, if the United States thinks that it can build a united international uh, coalition that attempts to isolate Russia diplomatically and uh, penalize it, economically, I think we've already got the answer to that. We've been trying for as long as this invasion has been underway, and we've made very little headway, and I doubt we'll make a whole lot more.
0: But do you think that there is a sense in the global south, or or at least that to some extent we're paying for the Iraq war and the uh, the Afghan uh, war in the sense that so much of the global south and particularly in, in countries like africa we're seeing this happening now in niger where the people uh, in the streets particularly young nigerians are in the streets supporting russia and condemning france and the united states and my understanding is that the feeling amongst the global south is that russia is not a colonial power whereas the us and, and nato have a colonial history but I find that a little ha- hard to understand because, it's, you know, you can make the case that the Soviet Union was a colonial project, uh, particularly the occupation of the Warsaw Pact countries. So why is it that Russia gets a free pass in the global south as not being a colonial power and therefore having credibility and traction?
3: Well, I think part of this is the result of what you might call U.S. hypocrisy, at least as perceived through the eyes of much of the global. The United States has, uh, in its rhetoric, talked about very lofty and viable principles. But in its behavior, it has uh, too often violated the principles that it espouses. And I think you're exactly right. What, what the global South has seen in Iraq, what it saw in Afghanistan, uh, what it saw in Kosovo, where they perceived the United States and NATO as going out of area. This is supposedly a defensive alliance, but it was operating well outside of NATO territory. Um, NATO was not attacked, um, and it uh, essentially went to war against Yugoslavia for things that were happening inside that country, and it did so without a U.N. Security Council mandate. And so from the uh, point of view of the Global South, when they hear the United States talking about all of the sins Russia has committed in Ukraine, uh, which they don't dispute, they also recall similar behaviors from the United States, at least from from their perspective. And I think that has undermined our ability to really rally them to the cause here.
0: So do you think, though, George, that this war is actually getting more and more out of hand, I mean going back to your book uh, The Russia Trap, How a Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe. Now the naval drones that are being used by Ukraine against Russian shipping, particularly a big chemical tanker uh, near the Kersh Strait Bridge, and, and I imagine since Russia has Destroyed so much of Ukraine's grain terminals and threatened to to attack any ship or consider any ship bringing uh, uh, exporting grain out of Ukraine through the Black Sea is also carrying weapons. In other words, can Russia actually supply the African countries that they promised? Will will there not be a reciprocity from Ukraine uh, into in, in stopping Russian shipping if? russia can stop ukrainian shipping
3: well i think first of all uh, we are in an escalatory phase of the war and i think it's been true for a long time that when one side seems to be getting the upper hand the other side is incentivized to escalate last year ukraine had the upper hand russia escalated Uh, It did not escalate into the use of nuclear weapons, as many people feared at that time. But nonetheless, it undertook a a significant uh, escalation uh, in the war. And I think right now the Russians seem to have the upper hand. The Ukrainian counteroffensive is faltering. Um, And as that happens, I think the Ukrainians are incentivized to do other things to try to demonstrate that uh, they still have military capability, they can still hurt the Russians. And so how far this current phase of escalation goes, tough to say at this point. But Russia is certainly attempting to wreak havoc on uh, Ukraine's agricultural sector. They have been traditionally a large agricultural exporter. That's a big part of their economy. And as the Russians try to grind down the Ukrainians, attacking their economy is, is uh, becoming an increasing part of that. Now, I do think that the Ukrainians, as this happens, are going to retaliate directly against Russian shipping, against Russian territory more and more. How effective that will be, hard to say. But to the degree that it is effective, that in turn is, is most likely to lead to escalatory steps and retaliation by Russia, so um, the war is not out of control not yet, but uh, the dangers of continued escalation are significant. The more it escalates, the, the closer we get to a, a time when this can't be kept under control—at least not very easily.
0: But. What would Putin gain from using a nuclear weapon? I mean, if it's a if he fires off a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine, what then? I mean, wouldn't that? I can't see the military utility of that. It it would isolate him even more as a, as an international pariah. Well,
3: I think that's right. From a diplomatic point of view, that's something that would certainly hurt Russia. It would result in almost universal condemnation i think there's no question about that and and that's part of the reason why i don't think putin is very eager to use tactical nuclear weapons um and they wouldn't have a lot of military utility in a war like this it's it's not as if you're going to be able to destroy the ukrainian front lines with tactical nuclear weapons that would have quite a devastating effect on russia's own forces were they to do that so Militarily and diplomatically, not an attractive option. I think the only way Putin would do that would be, A, if he felt the United States or another nuclear power were attacking Russia itself, or if he felt otherwise uh, in danger of losing this war altogether. And for a variety of reasons, I think Putin, and, and actually much of the Russian foreign policy establishment believes that that would probably result to Russia's uh, complete demise were they to lose this war. So if they were really pushed into a corner, then yes, I could see that.
0: But George, do you think that the United States, and I guess by extension NATO, have really seriously wanted Ukraine to win this war because where the, our side keeps setting these red lines. You can't have tanks, for example, and then after a few months they relent and let them have tanks. And the same now is happening with the F-16s, although they won't arrive for a, for a year. And meanwhile, Russia has air superiority and I can't see how you, the Ukrainians could make a breakthrough in the Russian lines with all of the Equipment and the and the armor that the West has supplied them, without being vulnerable to Russian air power, and so. I, I mean, are we seriously? Do, is there an ambivalence on the part of NATO and the United States in terms of, how much they're prepared to help Ukraine? Because the Ukrainians are complaining, you know, that as as you guys dither about whether to give us weapons. It's given the Russians months to prepare these formidable defenses, which the Ukrainians are having a hard time penetrating.
3: Well, yes, I think uh, there is ambivalence in the United States, not about whether we want Ukraine to win. I think we we certainly do. We're not ambivalent about that. The the problem we have here is how do we balance um, our desire to support Ukraine militarily and to see them succeed on the battlefield? with our concerns about escalation into a direct conflict between Russia and the United States. And that's a balance that we've tried to strike from the beginning of the war. Um, and I believe it's an important balance to strike, because uh, everyone loses if this war were to escalate into a direct U.S.-Russian military conflict. Um, that's not a war anybody can win, and, and particularly not Ukraine. So. Uh, now, the second thing I'll say is I don't think there are weapons that the United States can provide to Ukraine that would ensure a Ukrainian military victory on the battlefield. Even if we provide F-16s, we can't provide them in, in enough numbers with enough trained Ukrainian pilots um, and uh, in the conditions that Ukraine has to fight under for that that. Kind of a transfer that make much of a difference in this war. Uh, I think that also goes true for tanks. And you can see in the current counteroffensive, the Bradley infantry fighting vehicles, the Western tanks that we provided, the Russians are destroying in fairly impressive numbers. So these are not uh, magic weapons that can bring the Ukrainians victory. And I don't uh, have much sympathy for the argument that Ukraine's uh, struggles in the counteroffensive are the result of lack of American support.
0: Well, George Beebe, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks, Ian. And again, I mean, speak with George Beebe, who's the Director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He served in government for nearly 25 years, including as Director of Russia Analysis at the CIA and as the White House Advisor on Russia Matters for Vice President Dick Cheney. And his latest book is The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into Trump's claims of victimhood where... In fact, the real victims of Trump's attempt to steal the 2020 elections are the over 90 million Americans whose votes Trump tried to steal. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Amanda Marcotte, who's a feminist author, blogger, and politics writer for Salon. She's the author of Troll Nation, How the Right Became Trump-Worshipping Monsters, Set on Rat-Effing Liberals America and the Truth Itself. And her latest article at Salon is Why Trump's January the Sixth Indictment Feels So Different. This time there are victims. Welcome to Background Briefing. Amanda Marcotte.
4: Thanks for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, as Trump left Washington, D.C. on Thursday after his third indictment and arraignment, and he was actually told by the judge, warned about trying to uh, essentially influence the jury, that he should behave himself. He goes to the airport and then basically portrays himself as the victim. And that it's, uh, you know, he's the leading candidate and it's the Biden administration that's out to prosecute and persecute because he's a way ahead of Biden, as he said. And, but then he went on that toxic well of, of uh, American carnage going back to his inauguration, talking about how disgusting a, a city, Washington, D.C. is with graffiti and filth. And I can't, I can't help feeling, Amanda, that that was a code for the kind of jury pool that he's gonna be facing. What do, you, what do you think that was all about?
4: Yeah, I mean, this is, they're attacking the, the jury that hasn't even been impaneled yet for the same reason that they attacked Philadelphia, Detroit, Atlanta, uh, cities like that during the attempted coup in 2020. And, and it all comes down to the same dog whistling argument that big cities with large black populations uh, aren't real Americans, that they have no right to sit juries, they have no right to vote, that they are uh, frauds or fake. Uh, it's just racism. It's just racism. Like, I, I don't even know that we need to really, like, I, I think sometimes there's a tendency to try to, like, overtalk this, but it make it sound more complicated or interesting than it is, but it's not. It's just him doing white nationalist identity politics and, you know, making the dog-whistling argument that it should be illegal for black people to sit in judgment of him.
0: Well, on his Truth Social on Wednesday, Trump wrote... The latest fake case brought by crooked Joe Biden and deranged Jack Smith will hopefully be moved to the impartial venue such as a politically unbiased (laughs) nearby state of West Virginia. And then he went on to say, Impossible to get a fair trial in Washington, D.C., which is over 95% anti-Trump code for black and for which I have called for a federal takeover in order to bring our capital back to greatness. And of course, a recent census data showed that Washington is 45% black, while West Virginia is 93% white. So no escaping the dog whistle there, right, Amanda?
4: Yeah, if he didn't want to be tried in Washington, D.C., perhaps he should not have uh, conducted a coup in Washington, D.C. And, you know, it's noteworthy that even as he's claiming to be not guilty, he's calling for yet another coup in Washington D.C. So at this point, his argument is: I did like both. I'm not guilty of the crime, and also let's. I want to do it again and again and again. You know.
0: <laughs> Your article at at Salon, Amanda Bacot. McCart- why Trump's January the sixth indictments feel so different this time? There are victims. You end the piece by saying Trump tried to steal your right to vote, just like he stole those classified documents. Trump didn't just commit crimes against the government or an abstract concept like democracy. He abused regular people, and his victims number in the millions. Well, actually, over 90 million to be precise. So. That seems to me to be such a powerful argument. Do you think the Democrats are going to seize on that and contextualize what's really going on with Trump and to neutralize? uh, I don't think he can do much about his base and penetrate the bubble of delusion. But maybe you can peel off enough uh, reasonable people in this country, independents and Republicans, to recognize that this guy uh, was taking away their right to vote.
4: Yeah, I think so. And I don't think that they needed the indictments necessarily to even make that argument. Uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats were making that argument during the midterms, and it was extremely successful. Um, I think the fact that Roe versus Wade got overturned helps drive home the cost of letting Republicans rule as a minority and rule without having their power checked. And how bad things can get if our if more of our democracy is taken away. I think the public understands that. You just need to keep reminding them, for sure, um, because people get distracted easily. But I, I think that Biden and the Democrats will run on the fact that democracy continues to be threatened, and they'll and the fact that this. These indictments have happened, that there will be court motions, God help us, maybe even a trial, um, will help drive home the fact that Donald Trump's goal here is what it has always been, which is to make sure that you do not have a right to say no to Donald Trump. And that's, that's kind of how he lives his entire life. I mean, it's not just his coup. It's also the tax fraud. It's also the theft of the classified documents, and it's also the rape. Every single case, it is basically Trump wants, Trump gets to have. It doesn't matter what your rights are.
0: Well, you mentioned the rape and the E. Jean Carroll case. And the point about that and the, and the point that you make in your article, Amanda, is that she came across as a real person who had a real story to tell about being sexually assaulted by Trump. And the jury was swayed, and I think the the wider public were, weren't they not? So again, it's it's it gets down to personalizing the damage this man does to human beings in this country, to American citizens, the very people that he says he wants to make America great again. It's never been about making America great again. It's always, always been about making Donald Trump rich again. Not that he was ever rich in the first place, or not like he said he was, so... There's also that factor, isn't it? This whole thing is, uh, I don't know whether you've seen his appeal to his voters to give him money, but he's shaking down all these people across the country. This massive grift is going on.
4: Yeah, he the thing that's so interesting to me about his relationship with the supporters is that he gets them to kind of go along with it by making them feel like they're in on the con. and. And if you know anything about con artists and grifters, this is actually one of the most common kinds of con jobs is to sort of convince the mark that they're in on a grift against somebody else and then leave them holding the bag. And that's basically what he does with his followers. He makes them feel like they're doing something edgy and dangerous, that they're part of a a plot to sort of make MAGA forever powerful despite the fact that they are a minority, and they get so caught up in the fantasy of their own power that they don't realize that he is actually using their own ill intentions against them to shake them down, like you said, for money. One of the reasons con artists do something like that is because it makes it so that the that Mark can never really admit that they're being conned because there's no way to save face because to admit you were conned is to admit that you allowed your ugliest self to be in control. So that's why I think we're seeing this unwillingness, this just unbelievable unwillingness to admit he's a criminal, to admit the most obvious facts because to admit that, is to admit that they voted for a guy that they knew was a criminal, that they knew was a rapist, that they knew was a fraud because they thought he would get one over on people they didn't like. And so to admit that is to admit that they're bad people and they're just never going to do it.
0: Hmm. Rudy Giuliani played a role in trying to take your vote away, right, along with Eric Trump. They showed up in Philadelphia right in front of the building that where the votes were being counted, Right. So describe that scene, these jackasses showing up at the convention center and how there was a counter demonstration that drove them away.
4: Yeah. So I live in Philadelphia, which was immediately targeted like the day after the election by Trump and his conspirators for claiming that our votes were fraudulent and needed to be thrown out. Rudy Giuliani concentrated really heavily on Philadelphia. And the day after the election, he started his campaign coming here with Eric Trump the convention center to claim that they needed to stop counting the votes inside, and those votes were all the mail-in ballots. Uh, they took a little lo- took a little longer that election to count than ones cast at polling centers, and they had some like MAGA people with them, and it was very like the word went out on on social media that they were there, and it, it was very clear to the residents of Philadelphia that saw this, that the plan was to get some, you know, MAGA people to storm the place and and basically stop the counting. And we knew this because they'd already tried it in Detroit. They tried it in Phoenix. Uh, they got pretty far in some of the places they tried it. So um, this is Philadelphia, however, the F-around-and-find-out city. <laughs> And and I, I raced down there both as a reporter and somebody who who was, you know, personally affected by this because my vote was in that, that building. And by the time I got there, like, the crowd had gotten so big that Rudy Giuliani and Eric Trump had fled. And there were, like, eight MAGA people in their red hats screaming invective while the cops, like, guarded them from the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> um, And people... You know, people were peaceful, but you know, I, I would be scared of Philadelphia too because if they had tried anything, it would have gotten ugly. I think. Um, and instead, what happened was that the people that showed up to protect the convention center started marching around downtown, blasting music and, and dancing in the streets. So it, it was. It ended up being kind of a fun night, but you know, it started off pretty tense. So, just in the last
0: couple of minutes, Senator, Jack Smith's 45-page indictment, the fourth count is that Trump tried to, quote, to injure, oppress, threaten, and intimidate one or more persons out of the right to vote and to have one's votes counted. And he's invoking an 1870 law signed by President Ulysses S. Grant, which was an anti ku Klux Klan law, which is, I think, totally appropriate, since the Republicans had determined to take away African-American votes. And also, it's worth noting that Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina accused the U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin, who will be presiding over this uh, January 6th case that Trump's just been indicted for, in Washington, D.C. She is uh, black, and she was nominated by an African-American president, Barack Obama. So do you expect the subtext of, the, we're going back to the to the dog whistles, but uh, are the dog whistles going to turn into a howl?
4: <laughs> I mean, they're basically there. Like, it's just a matter of time before Trump starts calling the judge racist, as he's been calling Fannie Willis, the prosecutor in Georgia, who's, who's um, black, and has been pressing the case against him there. And I think also he's called Alvin Bragg racist and Tish James. If you're black and you try to hold him accountable, he calls you racist. And he's basically saying that they're racist against white people. (laughs) And, you know, it is is his oldest and favorite trick, which is just plain old psychological projection. I know you are, but what am I? Defense, Because the fact of the matter is, he's obviously the racist one. If he and his associates stopped trying to keep ordinary Americans from voting and targeting people because of the color of their skin for their, like, saying that they're frauds and saying that they're not legitimate voters, none of this would be happening. All of this would be going away. But he, he's just so all consumed with this obsessive belief that, that black people aren't legitimate Americans. I mean, I think, it, remember, this all kicked off because he denied that Barack Obama is a legitimate American and had a legitimate right to run for president. I mean, this, is, this has been his, his thing from the beginning,
0: well, it's unfortunately resonating in the country. As you said earlier, racism is there. It's the, more than the subtext. Just think about the, uh, for example, all those governors in red states that refused the Medicare and Medicaid money that was offered to them by the Biden administration. Why do white people in those states deny themselves health care coverage? I think it's because. They think that uh, it's all designed to help African Americans and minorities.
4: I 100% agree. And and when Obamacare was getting passed, I actually would I wrote some pieces where I argued just this. I said, like, I know it sounds dumb. I know it sounds dumb. But at the end of the day, when they're saying things like, there's going to be lines at the ER and stuff, what they're saying is, if we pass this health care bill, then you will have to share health care services with people of color. And people said I was nuts. And I, and I don't hear that anymore because they've become less subtle about it. But that was always the underlying vicious bigotry of all of this.
0: Well, they're dying of whiteness. What can I say? <laughs> I thank you for joining us, Amanda Marcotte.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Amanda Marcotte, who's a feminist author, blogger, and politics writer for Salon. She's the author of Troll Nation, How the Right Became Trump-Worshipping Monsters Set on rat effing Liberals America and the Truth Itself. And her latest article at Salon is Why Trump's Jamie the Sixth Indictment Feels So Different. This Time There Are Victims.